Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Tonight, we have this, we have the first Republican presidential debate of the 2024 campaign season. In a way, it's it's really, this is, the, this is the kickoff, such as it is, of the entire 2024 presidential primary everything season, since there is no real contest on the Democratic side. I guess uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. may disagree about that if he still calls himself a Democrat as of today, um, and uh, Marianne Williamson and whatever. But, you know, uh, there's no debates. Uh, I don't think there's going to be much of a contest on the on, on the primary side. But we do have this, but we do have the Republican uh, uh, primaries, which notionally are contested. And this is going to be the first debate. It's on Fox. But there is this oddness to it. And before we started recording today, I I mentioned this and how it has put me, I wouldn't say off balance exactly, but there's this uncanny quality because as I said, it is notionally contested, but really since Donald Trump is, well, even if Donald Trump was going to be there, in in effect, this primary is not contested because Donald Trump is going to be the nominee. And, and if you if you have some edge case disagreement about that, you know, I've addressed it on the blog, my take on it, which is that absent, uh, let's, let's be blunt about it, absent Donald Trump dying in the next year or so, uh, he's going to be the nominee. I actually don't think even, even being convicted in, in one or more of these cases, he's the nominee. Okay. Uh, but he's not even going to be there. So it's not even, you know, so we have this strange uh, thing where we're having this debate. Um, a lot of political junkies are going to watch it. As I said, it's going to be on Fox. It's all that kind of stuff. And yet it's a debate among all the people who will not be the nominee. Uh, my co-host Kay was just telling me that a, a few moments before we went on, went on the air, uh, Trump's campaign put out a press release that said something to the effect of, this is really just a tryout for who's going to be in the in the next Trump administration as, you know, cabinet appointees, which, I mean, I don't think there's going to be uh, another Trump administration. I certainly hope not. Uh, but if there is, he's right. He's right. 
it, the whole thing is a joke. Um, and so that is kind of strange. How do you kind of come at this? And um, it's not just a matter of, you know, what do you make of coverage of the debate itself? What do you make of the entire thing? And even the people involved in this debate have a bit of a hard time with it because one of the things that has come up over the last couple of days is that Fox has said it will not be allowing surrogates for the Trump campaign into what is called the spin room, i.e. the kind of uh, holding area where everybody... you. After every debate, you have kind of a little, a little mini room auditorium area where all the press that's credentialed for the debate and all the spinners and surrogates and campaign aides and so forth for each of the candidates who are up on the stage get to kind of make their case why their guy or their gal won, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So Trump, after refusing to show up at the debate, wanted to have his people there to spin the debate in Trump's favor. <laughs> and Fox you know, reasonably enough said, uh, you know, come on, dude, are you kidding? Like, <laughs> you can't come. You're not, you're, you know, you, what are you, what are you thinking? You're not at the debate. Um, so as I said, even, even the people involved uh, have a bit of a, a difficult time making sense of how you, what you do about this kind of 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 debate. Uh, so that is what we are going to uh, get into uh, today. We're going to talk through it because you know it is still, even though I would say, you know, it is not an absolute certain. I mean, look, Trump is seventy seven. He could drop dead. I mean, any of us could drop dead, but obviously, a little more likely someone pushing eighty. So, but even but even beyond that, I mean, yes, there are things that could happen. Blah 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 blah. You know, it, it is. Let's put it this way. I would say it's just as likely. It's pretty much just as likely he will be nominee as Biden will be the nominee. That's how I'd put it. In any case, there is still. This is still kind of uh, where the GOP is that you're having this debate and you're having this campaign and you're still having Ron DeSantis, you know, in, in his uh, ongoing death spiral and everything. Uh, and there we are. So, uh, so Kate, what, 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 what do we make of this? I guess we're going to go through the different people and kind of see how they're doing and what the latest news or what do you, what do you, what's your take globally on this whole, on this whole thing? Well, it's such an exercise in humiliation, you know, because, this is the Fox News debate, right? And arguably, no one did more to help Trump rise to prominence than Fox News. You know, in his initial campaign, uh, they gave him tons and tons of free media in the coverage and have, you know, marched in lockstep with him ever since. And in classic Trump matter, Trump fashion, it, it doesn't matter, right? Like loyalty means pretty much nothing to him. Like he demands it. And in the absence of it, he'll get mad. But even when you provide it unwaveringly, it doesn't really matter if it kind of runs counter to his interests at a later point to support you. So he's, you know, not only not showing up to the Fox debate, he kept everyone on tenderhooks for days, you know, and only kind of announced it a few days ago that he wasn't going to show up. And then to add insult to injury, he's going to counter program it with a Tucker Carlson interview, the famously just fired um, host from Fox News. So it's so classic 
Trump in that you know, all he's doing is kind of bullying Fox News, humiliating Fox News, humiliating the other candidates by extension. And then, as you say, also has the gall to do the, but, you know, my spinners are going to be like, that was an open question. I mean, it just everything about this shows how bullied the party is by him and how completely unwilling any, you know, whether it be the official party or the unofficial, you know, media apparatuses, how completely unwilling they are to take him down any kind of a peg. I mean, we also saw this in the um, the loyalty pledge thing of like, I will support the final candidate. Like, obviously, Trump is never going to sign that, you know, and he went public with his unwillingness to sign it. So and- what was the resolution of that? I, I hadn't thought about that in a long time, because that was going to be the thing you had to did he just, did they just give up on it after he refused? I think they refused? just gave up on it. Yeah. Because he said like, you know, there are three or four of these people that I would never support for president. Also, I mean, you've got the unspoken threat, right? That if something, this would never happen, but if something happened where he wasn't the Republican nominee, I mean, are any of us under the delusion that Trump would go quietly into this good night and that he wouldn't launch some kind of like disastrous for the Republicans third party bid that would like lead to Democratic victories in like Texas or whatever. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. No, there's well, I think, you know, that is the thing is that with Trump, it is always a matter of you need to lose for him to be winning and for him to be I mean, and and the reverse works, too. And, And as we know, winning is not a a a final verdict or final outcome. It is a continuous property for Donald Trump. It is what he's doing at any given time. And that's why um, it's it, it's not enough that he is 60 points ahead. He has to continually, uh, you know, humiliate everybody, everybody in, in, in the mix just to demonstrate that he is the top guy. And, and, and it's, it's not even, um, it's not even... You know, it, it, it's not even that he somehow has to keep reestablishing it or something like that. That's just how he operates. And even the people who are, I mean, the only mild dissent I would have from what you said is that even the people who are constantly, who've been constantly loyal, they need to be humiliated, mm-hmm. you know, over and over too, just to kind of, because that is that permanent quality of, Everyone else who his opponents are humiliated um, and attacked. I guess you know his his lackeys aren't attacked, but they are continually humiliated. It is it it is just built into who he is. So there we are. Yep. Okay. And you know, as that statement kind of suggests, he's happily calling this, you know, the undercard debate, making it out to be like this is the kids' table at yep. the Thanksgiving dinner, which. Obviously, it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, But despite that, you know, we'll have eight people out there tonight. And the funny thing is, you know, we're gonna we're gonna kind of go through and talk about them all. But it's such a weird debate because normally we can say, and there's endless debate about whether a debate itself is actually like useful in any kind of way for for anyone interested in anything serious. And I think there are pretty valid arguments to be made that, you know, they tend to favor people who are uh, telegenic and are good at delivering sound bites and not necessarily have any relationship to, you know, who would be a good president and, and who has 
the most thoughtful policies. Um, but that's been true for a long time. But even if you kind of consider these to be mostly superficial television events where the goal is to kind of not fall on your face and maybe have like a good strong moment you can package and and shoot around. If that's the goal of a normal debate, well, that those parameters kind of go out the window here because I mean, obviously all these candidates are going to want a good sound bitey moment. They're going to hope for a kind of a post debate bump. But like, as you say, we're not playing by the normal rules here because none of these people are going to be the nominee. So when the kind of like best thing you're striving for is maybe for Ron DeSantis to stop the bleeding. You know, that's just, we're playing by a very different set of rules here. And I do think um, that while a format like this is probably going to most favor someone like Chris Christie, who is genuinely good at, good at debating, good at like the Trump bully energy, I'm going to talk over you until you stop talking, like that stuff all favors him. But this is a field that has been trying to wiggle out of certain topic areas. And who knows how hard the Fox News moderators are going to kind of like push them on this stuff. But you've got half this field who tries to not talk about Trump or the indictments at any moment, you know, and if it comes up, they do some kind of like word salad pivot away thing. Um, well, I guess what is it of the of the of the ones up there that are there are two who are in who are not in that camp, Christy. And Asa Hutchinson, right. the former governor of Arkansas, who just at the last minute made the, you know, uh, made the grade. Um, and I, I guess we'd what we what would we consider at this point Pence to be maybe 50, 50 on that. Yeah, kind He's, of like a, a re- probably the reluctant next closest member of that group. Right. Whereas Christie and Hutchinson are that's their brand. Yeah. Trump's got to go. He. Uh, I, I mean, I don't want to get too fine uh, uh, gradations, but as you say, the others are, and the weaponization, right? You know, they're they're. I mean, it's. I guess we'll we'll get into this, or we can. I don't know if we want to talk about DeSantis first, but one the thing that was very striking to me, uh, a, f- uh, a week or so ago, um, it didn't leak exactly. His super PAC basically yeah. sent him a memo. This is how you know the whole th- the whole notion of the super PAC thing is that the super PAC and the campaign can't coordinate. They have to keep up the legal fiction that these are independent entities. Uh, But at this, I don't know if it's, I don't even know if it's just on the Republican side or it's kind of universal that, you know, largely notional wall has pretty much broke down. Um, I mean, at this point, since the DeSantis campaign is having a lot of money problems, they're basically running his camp. I mean, they're kind of taken over running his campaign. And I guess what they do is they find some obscure place to post something and it's just public posting. It's like us posting something on, you know, uh, TPM, just our putting out there for the public, even though the public in this case doesn't know where it doesn't know where it is. And I guess the times found out about it. And, and the, the key strategy thing was defend Trump, attack Vivek Ramaswamy. And that really kind of shows you where, not just where DeSantis is, where the Republican Party is right now. That the kind of the key thing he has to do, I mean, it's not just that he's running against Trump. Trump is, as we've seen, the de facto incumbent here. He's certainly running that way. And the polls bear that out, right? So not only is he running against Trump, 
but he's running to unseat an incumbent, which you always, which is always going to be a really hard thing to do. And you need to make a really strong argument. I mean, if someone's running against, if, if, you know, if a, uh, if a Gavin Newsom or a Gretchen Whitmer had decided to get in and they say, and they, they were running against Biden, it's not just running against Biden. Biden's already has it. So to take it away from him requires some big argument. Um, and if you're running against Trump, you have to have a big argument. And they're defending him. They're defending the guy they're running against. It's so absurd. Right. I mean, and kind of before we dive deep into the individuals, it's just like with what we were saying, you can see a question being you know, raise your hand if you believe that Joe Biden won the 2020 campaign legitimately. And I mean, for those like, you know, Vivek Ramaswamy, who is kind of like his posture is to defend Trump more than Trump defends himself. Like he's not going to raise his hand. But what does someone like, you know, Nikki Haley or Tim Scott, people who have dodged this so far by, like you say, focusing on the weaponization of the DOJ um, or doing the kind of like, half-assed Republican thing of like, well, there are some irregularities, but Joe Biden right. is president. You know, like that's right. not really a, a question they want to take. They're not going to want to answer questions about the indictments. Um, even, you know, with the exception of Mike Pence, they're not going to want to like be nailed down on specifics of the of abortion policies that they would or would not accept. I mean, they'll probably do the kind of thing of, you know, well, I would sign whatever can get through Congress and kind of cop out that way. But there are some like sensitive issues for this group, most of, most of which are born from the dynamic you're talking about, which is you are running oppositionally to Trump, but you can't say anything bad about Trump or risk alienating the huge chunk of the Republican base that is with him rain or shine. And it's not just say something bad. You have to affirmatively defend him. I mean, right. for a lot of these candidates, you have to come in and say, ba basically say the weaponization of the D Department of Justice has to end. We have to move. So it like affirmative, affirmative, uh, right. Defense, even, even, even beyond the, but you know, when you, when you made that point about, and, and, you know, Fox tends to be, I wouldn't even say they're good at this. It's that their Fox's editorial loyalties have been pretty divided on this. I mean, not just editorial loyalties. I mean, they lost almost a billion dollars. On, on precisely this question. And you're right. It, it's impossible to think that one of the Fox moderators will not ask the question exactly as you did. You know, do you think Joe Biden was the legitimate winner of the 2020 election? And that walls off any sort of, as you said, well, regularities. He is president. You know, right. he is president. I see him there. You know, all, all these kind of ways you can dodge a question gives no way to dodge a question. And the big thing that also walls it off is that certainly Asa Hutchinson and Chris Christie, their hands are going to go straight up because that's their brand. That's kind of the only th that's the only thing they're doing in this race, that that's that's what they're doing. And like, I, I'd actually be curious, will Mike Pence's hand go up? I don't know. kind of think it has to. I, I don't know how. I mean, who knows? It's Mike Pence. But like, uh, how could it not? Yeah. I mean, how, is he going to say like, no, like sh I should have been hanged? I mean, what is, <laughs> what is he going to say? Right. I mean, um, I'm actually more team hang me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. But but certainly um, 
it's 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 a little hard to know on 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 the other ones. I mean, this whole process and and for our listeners, you know, I'm sure some of you are kind of listening and saying like, well, both of you have just introduced this as a totally meaningless exercise. Like, why are we listening to you guys if this is so meaningless? And I and and you know, maybe you shouldn't. Maybe you should. Uh, you know, skip ahead to the to the next episode or something like that. But why I think it is not only interesting but consequential is that it is a mirror about the whole Republican Party. And we can sort of see the different factions, different potential futures of the Republican Party playing out through this. Um, and as we know, there's there is at least a big chunk of the elite of the Republican Party, by which I mean elected office holders, uh, operatives, heads of allied organizations, blah, 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 whose basic position, if they were to state it um, openly, is I'm just keeping my head down until Trump's gone. Not necessarily Trump's gone and we go back to Jeb, but at least this guy this guy, Donald Trump, and the 2020 election. And like, I'm not going to not going to stick my head up, I'm not going to take any flack over it. But like, I'm just kind of waiting for it to be over, which is sort of like, you know, it's the Mitch McConnell right. GOP. Right. Okay, so let's go person by person. And let's start with DeSantis. As you said, kind of the biggest thing on his front of late, o- along with his slow slippage in the polls is uh, this memo, uh, which, as you say, like this is the way they kind of wink towards like it's publicly shared information. And the DeSantis campaign is more run by the super PAC than like most modern campaigns to the point where the top guy is employed by the super PAC and not by DeSantis himself, which does like kind of introduce kind of baffling questions about how do they do basic coordination of like you know, where to, where to have a meeting, you know? Yeah. Is now, is that one of the guys? Cause when they were doing, uh, all of that, uh, budget cutting and firing all those people, mm-hmm. several people at the top were just moved over to the super PAC. Is, is that one of those guys? I can't remember. I can't quite remember. This is like Jeff Rowe. I think his name is. Right. And- He's all at the super PAC. Right. Okay. And the and, memo was published on his firm's page, right. which is what brought up if this was intentional or not, because as soon as the Times wrote about it, they Took got it down. rid of all the stuff that wasn't oppo research about the other Republican candidates. Interesting. Interesting. Um, but like you said, it says, you know, attack Vivek Ramaswamy, call him Vivek the fake. That's the like kind of brilliant political advice um, that's in there. And go after is it, is it. Is it pronounced Vivek? I thought it was Vivek. Is it? I, I mean, it must Vivek. be. Yeah, otherwise, so, they wouldn't come. Yeah. I mean, it's I will say this. It's not um, not to be too oversensitive about these things, but I think it is, it's probably by design. I think uh, when you are, um, I think when, I don't know how, you know, I think they got to know this and I think it's for them, it's probably intentional for a few reasons. But if it's not, I, you know, making fun of someone's name or implicitly making some eh, fun of someone's name when you make a rhyme about it or something like that, when it is a non, uh, a name that is not generally familiar in the English speaking world, um, from an, you know, from a, uh, you know, not a name that has been common in the past in the United States. Gotta be a little, a little, 
uh, cautious about that. You know, because it's because it's Vivek Ramaswamy. It's it's you know it's it's a South Asian name uh, that's not certainly not. Um, we haven't had a South Asian president. We certainly haven't had a a South Asian GOP nominee. Um, that's that's on. It's kind of on de- delicate ground. But I will say this: I doubt it is whether or not it is intentional. It is certainly got to be done with a full cognizance. Of, of that issue because there was, you know, um, in one of the Iowa confabs, not the, not the fair, but one of, you know, some other meetup or something like this. And there was a Times article and Ramaswamy was like a big hit, right? And they were interviewing people there. And um, one of the people, one of the conservatives who was loving him said, well, he, he's, a, he's clearly a good like Bible believing Christian. And he's not. He's not Christian. He's Hindu. I don't know if he's like an observant Hindu, but he's not Christian. And I have no doubt that the DeSantis campaign wants to kind of clarify that for anybody who's not clear on that. Um, Yeah, but totally. But it's just like the memo, I think, is inevitably going to play a big part in this debate because if our listeners will remember the way that Chris Christie took down Marco Rubio in 2016 was <laughs> Marco Rubio was giving I actually like just listened back to this it is kind of an in- totally bizarre thing that he's saying to begin with he's saying that like Obama is not incompetent and thereby he's dangerous basically is the point of it. But he keeps saying over and over, like just the phrasing is just, it strikes your ear oddly. And then Chris like, Christie, like he knows what he's doing or exactly, something. Exactly. Yeah, right. yeah. Yeah. But yeah, he says yeah. it like four times back to back. And then Chris Christie breaks in and he's like, well, there's the 25 second speech. And then he goes into this thing of, you know, how if you're a senator, you can get away with having these little canned speeches and get away with things. But when you're a governor, you actually need to change people's lives. And that was like, the big, huge Chris Christie moment took down Rubio's campaign. And here, all the conditions are ripe for the same thing. Because if the second DeSantis goes after Vivek Ramaswamy, either Vivek or someone else on the stage is going to be like, you got the memo. So you're following the memo after all, right? (laughs) Like he can't do anything that the memo tells him to do without opening himself up to like, well, it's good you're following what your super PAC told you to do up on the stage today. Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's for, for, you know, in the 2016 thing, the thing was that and it, it was, <laughs> you know, Chris Christie, there's some good things about him. There's a lot of bad things about him. But man, he is a good bully. Mm-hmm. He's a good bully. He knows the weakness. And and the thing that was there with Rubio is I, I, I don't remember. I don't remember. It was precisely like this, but it was generally like this, you know. Rubio gives his canned 12-second statement. Uh, Christie jumps in and says, oh, you can't do without a can, your canned statement. And Rubio comes right back to the canned statement. Yep. And then he goes, there you go again. And Rubio clearly like cannot think on his feet enough not to go to one of his two or three things. And, and it just resonated because everybody who had been following that campaign knew, like, you're right. Those are his only three statements. But but to your point, um, 
he is just walled in by that memo, whether mm-hmm. it's defending Trump or attacking uh, or if he says like the fake, the fake, which is like. I don't think he would, but. I, well, just even, especially since it's in the. I mean, that would be like. You can't, right? Yeah. I mean, also, uh, who knows, like, though, rest know? easy, Ron, without that all-time zinger in your pocket. <laughs> like, I'm not sure I would stretch myself to bring it to the stage. It's pretty It's pretty lame, even if it weren't, even if it weren't uh, in this campaign memo. And even if it weren't like, you know, don't make fun of the South Asian guy's name. Right. Just don't. <laughs> yeah. And also, the thing about Chris Christie... It makes sense that he was friends with Trump before all of this transpired because they have some really glaring similarities. But on the debate stage, the thing that they are so good at and which translates into interviewing both of them as well, and obviously specifically interviewing Trump has been you know, a a task that has bedeviled nearly every reporter who's tried to do it. And a big reason why is because they are both, you know, fueled by this egotism and power lust and kind of macho ideas of dominance, they are so willing to break social norms and to do things that make normal people really uncomfortable. Because like with Rubio in that section, with Jeb Bush at others, it doesn't even have to really do with like the strength of their campaign or their preparation. It's just most people have a lot of trouble screaming over other people to make their point and just keep talking louder and louder until the other person stops talking and like saying things that are rude and, you know, cutting across and being like, no, I'm going to talk right now and you're going to stop talking. It's just like that on a basic psychological level, that is really, really antisocial behavior that most of us are innately trained not to do. And Mm. these two guys don't have a problem with that kind of like aggressive, uncomfortable behavior. And that makes them so hard to reckon with on the debate stage because everyone else is playing by the rules, right? Like everyone else is kind of waiting their turn or waiting for their moderator to cue them. But guys like Trump and Chris, they're like, no, I'm going to barrel through, you know, act now, apologize later. Well, apologize never, you know, that kind of ethos. <laughs> well, it's also with, you know, the thing with Trump is aggressively personal because, you know, one of the defining moments of that campaign was Trump made this offhand remark calling Jeb low energy mm-hmm. and like low energy. It, it has a inevitable and obvious illusion to for a man in that kind of world low sexual potency he's low energy low testosterone you know it, it is like a it it's and this goes to your point it's so personal and so aggressive that um jeb heard that and he kind of didn't know how to respond and in that way he validated it because in the sort of the Trumpian world of kind of aggressive dominance hostility, Jeb just kind of took it, you know? And at some level, he, again, in that, in what was becoming the new Republican Party, he is low energy. He's not like humiliating anybody. He's not like, you know, so, you know, there's a, just briefly, uh, Trump, Christie, Rudy Giuliani, there is a tri-state, and in this case, I mean, Connecticut, New Jersey, New York. They are all part of a tri-state, a certain kind of tri-state 
New York media market, political culture. And in some ways, Trump brought that nationwide. And it has a particular um, it has a particular valence, a particular use in in this region because it's a generally liberal region you know, generally blue, even before the kind of the the hard red blue era, it's a more liberal part of the country. And in that in that context, there's always a place for a right leaning kind of authoritarian political uh, creature who doesn't really contest the generally liberal, you know, regional political culture, but kind of puts himself forward as someone who's like, I'm going to keep everybody in line. I'm going to kick a little ass. I'm not going to try to like ingratiate myself with all the groups, the blacks, the Jews, the Puerto Ricans. I'm just going to kind of keep everybody in line. That was definitely Rudy's thing. It was in its own way Christie's thing. It's certainly Trump's thing. And again, it's a certain kind of, it's a political diction that that is... And there's lots of other examples of it. In any case, let's go back to to So let's wrap DeSantis. Okay, how does he emerge from this debate? (laughs) As everybody soon will be. Yeah. (laughs) Right. How does he emerge as unscathed as possible? Like, what is a good kind of performance for him? And it's funny because I've been wondering now, because we've had the like flurry of Vivek on the rise stories and he's polling a little better because he seems to be the primary recipient of the DeSantis bleed so far. Um, And he's like, you know, a kind of well-spoken, smart young guy who got super rich when he was super young. And those people will always be objects of fascination for the, you know, American media and and public. But so I have been wondering if kind of the brunt of the attacks that we would say probably a month ago would mostly land on DeSantis might even shift a little bit more to Vivek tonight. But DeSantis will probably, you know, he's going to have like the center lectern. He's probably going to be the subject of some Chris Christie bullying in the absence of Trump. So kind of like, how does he emerge from tonight as intact with as strong a performance as he can, given what we know about his charisma levels and his kind of not as of yet demonstrated ability to be particularly agile and nimble when kind of in the heat of the moment? Yeah, I mean, I guess I would say that it he perversely does have a little going for him in the sense of reduced expectations. People mm-hmm. think he's kind of like dead in the water. So I think if he if he was able to have not zinger moments, but kind of just like, you know, kind of uh, respond well to some attacks on him, uh, just kind of come off as polished and strong, given that given that no one um, but this really kind of novelty candidate, mm-hmm. Ramaswamy, has 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 shown any, you know, any life to them at all. You he could come out of that with people at least saying, "Well, he's not totally dead," which is not great, but but about the best he can hope for. And I do think I, you're right that that he is uh, Ramaswamy is the only one who's really gotten any of the, as you said, any of the bleed from Trump. But I still think that DeSantis is going to get most of the attacks just because even though that's the case, he's still holding, what, 15, 20 percent. Right. That's where the the money is. You know, that's where the support is for everybody else. And 
Yeah. So, but that's, that I think is what, that's what he wants to come out with. Kind of look strong, uh, strong, polished, not have some kind of what I think is likely some very awkward DeSantis, you know, kind of like he has a little bowl of pudding under the lectern that he's, that he's, you know, grabbing bites of or something like that. That, that's what he, that's what he needs in this. Just that kind of solid performance that makes people, at least the uh, conventional wisdom say, all right, got to give this guy a second look. Right. Okay. And we've already kind of talked about Chris Christie, but he is, you know, self-admittedly, he's putting himself up there as like a pit bull um, being, you know, the only one kind of willing to go after Trump, which of course this will be Trump in absentia. Um, But one thing for Christie and for Pence to a lesser degree is like, okay, so they're, Christie especially, he's, he's, claiming this position of like, I'm the only one brave enough to tell it like it is. I'm the only one who is not afraid of Trump. Like I'm the alpha or dog, blah, blah, blah. But you know, the thing that he keeps running up against when he makes this pitch, which I think would at least appeal to the small slice of the Republican Party that is not, you know, that doesn't like Trump. But the thing he's running up against is there is such a long and storied history of Chris Christie being a huge Trump advocate, like arguably doing more than anybody else to establish his legitimacy in 2016 and then working for the transition and staying in his pocket even when Trump gave him COVID and and almost killed him. Um, But also the whole burger run thing, too. Remember, yeah, that was the big thing in 2016. Right. And, you know, Trump making fun of him for eating too many Oreos and all the horrible stuff that Trump always does. And it's a bit hard for Christie to, I think, make this really compelling case of like, well, I was bamboozled. Like, I didn't know how bad Trump would be, given that he stuck with him like until 2020. Like, that, right. there were a lot. There's the Access Hollywood tapes, you know, there's the uh, Muslim ban. There are just like, there's the impeachments. There are so many inflection points that I think would have made for a more believable narrative from this guy. But it's, I think everybody kind of gets the sense from Christie that he's, you know, he's super ambitious. Everyone knows that he's kind of a bully. I think the people who like him like that he, you know, same reasons as Trump, right? He, he says he says it like it is, blah, blah, blah. And he also at least used to have more of a veneer of like, he, you know, a, a bipartisan lean, like willing to work with anyone kind of thing. Um, but now I do think that, I mean, it doesn't matter again, because he's not going anywhere in the end, except for maybe like a panelist job on one of the networks. But it is a harder case to make that you alone out of the field are the, sh- the straight shooter telling people like it is when you just spent four or five years of your life propping up Trump's presidency while you thought that there would probably be a pretty distinguished role for yourself within it. And then as soon as that window closed, all of a sudden it's this guy sucks, right? The one thing that occurs to me, I mean, you know, he can he can always make the the argument you make in that case is, well, I I know him from the inside. Mm -hmm. You know, I you can't say I'm a Trump hater. Because I was, you know, I endorsed early in 2016. I stuck with him through the administration. I helped him in 2020. It was, it was, gen, you know, it was, it was the big lie that 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 was a step too far. Like, okay, you know, it's the best he can do. The thing that occurs to me though is that, and I haven't seen a lot of discussion of this, but with Trump not there, I mean, he can rattle off about Trump in absent. That that's not going to cut it. That doesn't really do anything. But what would make sense? 
to me for him to do is attack the others about Trump. Mm-hmm. So you say to you, I mean, <laughs> every every element here is, I was going to say you can attack Nikki Haley, but like why? <laughs> he wants to poach her 1% support. But, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe he goes to DeSantis like, you know, Ron, you were the big guy. Have you not realized that you can't keep defending this guy? You can't keep, you know, kissing this guy's ass. Are you just going to go with the memo that says you've you've got to, you know, you've got to keep defending the guy who 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 keeps humiliating you and who that is a logical thing because th- then he can that would allow Christie to establish to the extent that there's any audience in the GOP, and there is some audience, not a big enough audience to win the nomination, but there's some audience there of people who are done with Trump. And and I think there's certainly a, there is a substantial audience in the GOP for people who may not dislike Trump. They just, it's time to move on from Trump. And I think where someone, a very effective Christie could actually change some minds is to get some of those people to realize if you think it's time to for him to move on you, you got to you got to say so you can you know there's one side or another here um so he could he could make that argument and also be attacking someone because in a debate you got to be attacking someone who's there mm-hmm. attacking trump he's been doing that for months like whatever that's not that's not accomplishing anything so and as you, as as I said, uh, you know Nikki Haley or this Burgum guy. You know you, you got to attack someone who's got a little juice. And DeSantis is the obvious one. And I doubt, you know, the other good thing with DeSantis is is he's he's a he's another Rubio in the making. Mm-hmm. He's not going to re. He's not going to come up with. He's not going to improvise something that kind of you know goes toe to toe with Chris Christie. So right. that's kind of a that's that's what I would. If I were advising Chris Christie, that's what I would do. And I'm sure DeSantis has spent like the lion's share of his debate prep on how to deal with Christie in particular. Because I mean, what what po- what you know risk are the rest of them going to pose to him? They're largely in the same boat he is. So yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, if, if nothing else, with you know less the humiliation. I mean, like. Nikki Haley isn't humiliated if she doesn't win this, but like Ron DeSantis is. Exactly. And that is something that I've been thinking a lot about, too, which is like, why are these people running? Right. It's like in name, they're running to be president, blah, blah, blah. But like DeSantis obviously is not running to curry favor with Trump, right, to like secure himself a backup gig in the Trump administration. That's obviously not going to happen. Like he ran because after his reelection, he got all this buzz and he drank the Kool-Aid and he thinks that, or at least thought that he could be president because that's what a lot of people thought. So there's that. Chris Christie, I don't know, maybe he's delusional enough to think that he could win the presidency, but I think he knows that there are other benefits to playing this role, right? He gets in good with like the never Trumpers and the kind of like important media people who are all basically like, or at least like to portray themselves as like some kind of centrist, you know, they, he's a Republican, but he's not like totally under Trump's thumb. So that makes him an interesting entity. Um, he's been able to leverage this into like a ton of media attention and everything. So all that's good for him. Pence? Let me say one, th- just one, one more thing about Christie. A lot of media people like Christie. Yeah. They just do. They mm-hmm. always have. 
Um, and I even understand it at some level. He seems like a much more real person than uh, than than most of the of the GOP candidates. Um, I say that with all of the all of the awful things about him that I know. You know, Bridgegate is an example. Bridgegate is an example. The Christie, he never would have been like Trump, but halfway there, mm-hmm. right? These kind of these kind of really kind of gross abuses of power. Um, People like him in a way, media people like him in a way that, in a way similar to the way they like John McCain. Yeah, totally. You know? So and and so this allows him to uh, get back to media people being able to like him again without feeling bad about it because he was such a suck up to Trump. Right. Totally. For Pence, I I don't know if he's running to try to put a self-determined coda on his story so that his political career doesn't end with the let's hang Mike Pence stuff. Like, I doubt that feels (laughs) super good if he's, you know, has an eye on his legacy. But the thing that's been so weird about the Pence campaign is like, what has he come out swinging for? Abortion bans, right? That's the thing that he is genuine about that he is passionate about that's in his wheelhouse you know that that kind of tracks his career from when he was going after lgbtq people in indiana you know that's who he is but he hasn't really been able to be that too much because nobody wants to talk about anything with Pence except for Trump, obviously, because you've got the vice president of the last administration who barely made the debate stage and is running against the guy who was on the same ticket as him. I mean, it's so bizarre. And he's only tepidly doing the, you know, January 6th was wrong. This was a legitimate election. I shouldn't like, have been hanged. I changed exactly. my position. Exactly. So it's just, you know, what is he, what's he going to bring to the stage tonight that'll kind of, if not change his political fortunes, because I do think that ship has sailed, but change his trajectory, change his quote unquote legacy? It's a good, it's a, it's a good question. I, 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 you know, one of our colleagues has this idea that, as I've alluded to a few times um, in the blog, that there's a scenario where, where Trump comes to a plea agreement sometime over the next six months, year, something like that. And that if that happens, that Pence becomes sort of the, you know, Trumpism with honor kind of thing. Uh, let's assume that for the sake of conversation. Let's say Trump, through some sort of plea negotiation, leaves the race. I think that is, in in my way of understanding reality, almost, Im- almost impossible to imagine. Uh, but let's assume that for the moment. Okay. Uh, a lot of people, certainly at the elite GOP level, have to have hate DeSantis now because he went, he went after Trump. Um, and I guess maybe Pence has this idea that kind of like, Trump's not there. I was there. You can kind of sort of be for Trump by, by making me, I'm the consensus candidate. And, and I, that, that is hard for me to understand because again, the whole hang Mike Pence thing, right? I mean, he's, he betrayed Trump. He's, he's like the Judas of, of, of the, 
of the, you know, of, of the, um, of the Trump passion story. Right. So that, that doesn't work, but he may think it works. Um, and I do wonder if he does seem to be edging his way towards coming out against the big lie. Um, and sort of saying that the indictments are valid and maybe that's his way of getting right with history and, you know, Mm -hmm. but you know, I'm grasping for straws here. Totally. You know, who knows? Right. Uh, the one thing that, um, you said how, you know, kind of no one cares about, about what, what, uh, uh, Pence is selling with abortion that, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of Republicans are like, let's not talk about that. The other part of that is that, you know, his base is evangelical Christians. He's anti-abortion. He's anti, you know, he is a pure gender traditionalist, gender and sexual traditionalist, obviously, which in which abortion is, you know, part of that panoply of things. And the great irony of, of, um, of Mike Pence's is that after Donald Trump came along, evangelical Christians were just down with Trump. Right. They didn't want to talk about that stuff anymore. They want. They were more interested in defending him for for having sex with Stormy Daniels, right? So in a way, Trump destroyed the politics of evangelical Christianity as it had as it had existed when you made your bones with evangelical Christians by saying, "I'm against homosexuality. I'm against abortion. I'm against you know all gender non traditionalism." And and after Trump, those people decided we don't really give a shit about that. We at least don't give a shit that the candidate believes those things. Right. We want someone to kick everybody's ass. So Trump That's made a, Pence irrelevant. It's a super good point because, you know, pre-Trump, you could see that, especially now, you know, post-Obs, Pence just hanging his whole candidacy on like, I'm the Christian right guy. You know, I'm the only one who's going to go as hard against, mm-hmm. you know, women and gay people as you want. And um, not just Obs with the, with the kind of the way that 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 the politics, trans politics has moved so much totally. more central to our politics. Totally. All those things that he's the down the line, died in the wool, uh, uh, conservative evangelical Christianity guy. Only those people don't care about the, those not, people and, love Trump. <laughs> yeah. And, and to be fair to them, it's not necessarily they don't care about the issues. They could not care less whether the candidate believes in the issues. Right. I mean, Trump got it done for them either way. So yeah, exactly. He, his, he did the court his seats. Thrice marriages don't yeah. seem to yep. to bear Thrice out. marriages and and you know in the past being basically okay with gay people right. doesn't matter. And abortion. <laughs> yeah. And abortion. Right. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. 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 Okay. Um. Yeah. Let's do Vivek Ramaswamy. We've talked about him a little bit. There have been like ad nauseum profiles about him that kind of herald it's funny he fits in this slot of of the right wing right now very neatly this is the piece who are like the elon musk fanboys the ones who listen to joe rogan and who have this whole kind of like cinematic universe of all pretty much like white men who either have you know podcasts with like a bazillion listeners that like most people have never even heard of or, you know, like YouTube shows. It's very online. It's very Silicon Valley tech, bro. It's very like do this one weird crypto trick and you too can retire at age 30 with a bajillion dollars. You know, it's all that stuff. It's got streams of like, um, 
physical macho, like prove my, like, I'm not just a Silicon Valley nerd. Like I also am ripped. It's like, it's the Andrew Tate model of like, he walks around wearing sunglasses inside and he's always got a cigar hanging out of his mouth and he's like always shirtless. And they basically contribute to the right wing um, infrastructure by usually being like very misogynistic, often dipping into the wells of, um, you know, like anti-vaxxer stuff or, or medical related conspiracy theorizing. As we now know, like Ramaswamy is a 9-11 truther. So he but this is all this is a universe. It's very but it's very oriented towards, I think, the new right, like younger yeah. men who are getting really radicalized by this stuff online. And in that way, he slots in like there is a, a place for that, even though some things about him, I think, would seem so anomalous to the current MAGA dominated party. Like I was reading one big profile where they went back to his big fancy house and, you know, the nanny started preparing a platter of like watermelon salad and tofu tacos, which is like the MAGA wants like burnt steak and like hamburgers and McDonald's and ketchup on the walls, you know, like this is not, <laughs> this is like a, a hoity toity kind of like yeah, that's, rich that's, man wellness in my, in, stuff. Well, in MAGA world, that's girl food. Right, exactly. I mean, like if you're not eating like a hamburger with like a beef topping, yeah. <laughs> where, where, what are you even, what are you even, yeah, it's very, it's, it's, and this is, this in itself is a very online thing. It goes back to the politics of Gamergate. You know, mm -hmm. where a lot of the sort of the, if if you are fortunate enough not really to even know what I'm talking about when I talk about Gamergate, it has to do with sort of a press controversy about in the in the gaming world, and had to do if if women could be legitimate commentators in that world. But in any case, for our purposes here, and it's God, it must be about a decade ago now. A lot of the online right meme edgelord kind of trolling culture kind of comes out of that mm -hmm. and to your point that whole kind of tech bro online right thing um it's it's different from the alt-right it it may be it may not be functionally very different its origins come from different places and it's certainly it's you know a lot of Elon Musk fanboys, a lot of uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency stuff. Uh, it is not, in many ways, it's not traditional right at all. Mm -hmm. It's like religion doesn't play any big role there. Uh, it's it's also mixed in with a lot of kind of incel online culture stuff. So you have guys like Andrew Tate who are uh, make themselves into avatars, not just of hyper-masculinity, but of sort of like hyper-male success. Sort of like, yeah, I bang 10 women a night and I only take a break to smoke cigars and eat beef. And also, I'm a, I make tons of money and, you know, all of that kind of stuff, which is also hyper-masculine, but this kind of like, you know, uh, sexual conquests, right? You know, uh, beating up your women, all that kind of stuff. Feels, and he's, yeah. It also feels like it kind of grew out of. I feel like this was a thing in kind of the early two thousands, but the um, the weird specific time of like 
not just playboy culture, but um, like pickup artist culture. Yep. Like it's here, very much part of that. Here are the very psychological yep. tactics for you to kind of like break down a woman's self-confidence and all that kind of stuff. Um, so it's it, the only way it kind of like intersects with the old school religious right is they're still very interested in enforcing retrograde gender roles and the idea that, you know, women are like, sub to men in every way and a man kind of only like the greatest use of the woman is to either for the religious people marry him and bear him children and have him as support him as head of the household and then for these guys as like you know like you say notches on the bedpost things to brag about kind of a way to show that you're a real man and I think in that way Vivek is trying to like straddle the line to some degree because you know he is he's married he's like bringing his young children around with him a lot but this is definitely the world from which he came and it does make sense to me that like while DeSantis is faltering he's as you say he's the novelty candidate right now he's like getting the bump from that I mean he's also I mean just to state clearly he he's only barely eligible to be president by age Right. I think he's 36 years old. You've got to be 35, right? So he's a very young guy. He has no history in 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 electoral politics whatsoever. Even like voting. He, yeah. he voted for Trump the first time, but before that, I think it had been like over 10 years. It is funny that this has come, I mean, it obviously came up with Trump. It's come up with other people. It For, for me, certainly, I mean, I've missed voting in some election, not, not like presidential elections, but it's not like I have a perfect voting record. I've missed some, you know, local elections and stuff like that. Um, but when you just like, yeah, I don't vote like, dude, like, what are you, what? <laughs> that really is to me, that's kind of like a, that's a, you know, don't pass go. I mean, you, th- that is such a, but a lot of these guys try to play it off. So like, hey, a lot of us have been disenchanted, man. Right. You know, right. making it like a, 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 that kind of thing. The funny thing, the other, and I think you're kind of alluding to this with, with DeSantis, in many ways, DeSantis made a heavy play, continues to make a heavy play for that hyper online male totally. thing. That's why he's gotten in trouble with these videos. Um, but the, and his, his, his campaign is stocked with these people. It's got, again gotten him in some trouble uh, when they're you know when their history of emails or texts or you know hidden writings are revealed and stuff like that uh, and and so that's been a very deliberate choice. What has appealed to those people about him is you know that the the sort of the dominance culture of Trump that he has tried to embody. I fight, I never give up, I kick ass, I troll, you know, all that kind of appeals. But I don't think that's really like Ron DeSantis at some level. I'm not saying like he's better than that. I'm just saying I don't think he comes out of that culture in any way. But clearly, uh, Ramaswamy does. And and to be fair to him, it's not like um, every kind of every guy in the tech bro world is a kind of a Tate character with the sort of, you know, really, I mean, the Tate guy is now like under arrest for sex trafficking in Romania. I mean, this, this guy, this guy is a pretty extreme case. Uh, but Ramaswamy does come out of that tech bro, libertarian, Bitcoin trolling kind of thing. So it's a bit more authentic to him. So in that sense, it does make sense that he is at least, at least momentarily, uh, 
you know, becoming the next shiny object after right. after Ron crashes and burns. Now, of course, like the problem is we always have these guys who have no political experience at all, but are 100% convinced that like, put me in coach and I'm going to win the presidency, right? That tale is old as time. But we're already seeing Ramaswamy under this like initial round of scrutiny because nobody paid any attention to him and until really the last few weeks. And upon this immediate a wave of looking into him, we've got the 9-11 truther stuff that he won't stop talking about on any on every platform. Um, that which, he both denies but won't stop talking about exactly, it. Exactly. And yeah. which he kind of proactively brings up in connection to his January 6th conspiracy theory stuff. Um, so you have that. And then you have... Um, you know, him saying like he's going to fire 75% of the federal workforce. I mean, this is basically, it's it's an Elon Musk candidacy, right? Where he just kind of pulls things out of his ass and is like, here's my policy platform that I've spent all of 30 seconds thinking about and have no real response when people counter like, well, that's a really radical thing to say, right? Um, so he is, I just think like he is smart, like he's a good public speaker, and those things are important when you're virtually unknown. But it really does seem that under like the slightest bit of pressure, like weird shit's already starting to leak out. Yeah, I mean, he's he's got a million things like this. He's just some, as you said, he's a tech guy who got very rich, very young, which, you know, okay, more power to him. Like, you know, I'm sure that's fun. Uh, but uh, it, Again, though, you're in this thing where I think everybody knows it's Trump. So is it so for for if you're just kind of in in the GOP primary cosplay game, why not jump on this guy's bandwagon for a few weeks? He's kind of fun. He says he certainly he, he is playing that in a way that DeSantis didn't. He is playing not even to Trump's right. Like if Trump says, yeah, I'm going to fire a lot of the bad people in the bureaucracy and the deep state. And then dis- and then Ramaswamy says, yeah, I'm firing every single person in the government. Right. How about that? Like, right. you're like, OK, like so he's he's just he's he's not getting to Trump's right. He's he's just um, he's saying the kind of stuff to your earlier point that normally uh, non-traditional. And by that, I mean, you know, not heavily rooted in evangelical Christianity, non-traditional right-wing Republicans need to go to podcasts to hear that cool stuff right. that you're going to fire everybody who works for the government. And here's a candidate. So like, you know, yeah, right. cool. It's fun. Okay. So now we're really kind of getting the into dregs. The, the undercard. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So we have Nikki Haley who keeps kind of like insisting that she is running for president and is not generally a sign of a thriving campaign when you get that question repeatedly. But I think some of the conventional wisdom is that she's also perhaps more than anyone else on the slate, like auditioning to some degree to be, if not vice president, some kind of like role. Secretary of of state sort of thing. And she was, you know, I don't know. South Carolina governor, um, ambassador to the UN, like has these kind of like serious person credentials. I'm not, her campaign has been so bizarre because you would think that the corner she would kind of carve out for herself is like, I'm the only woman here. And so I'm going to kind of like use that 
to my advantage through other means. But then it's like she has no coherent anything about abortion. Like she has no kind of she's not even what a lot of female politicians do, which is like, well, I am mostly for like families and children. And I know that stuff better than men. And, you know, a lot of that is because, you know, a lot of women politicians do care about that. A lot of it is because it's a very safe issue space for a woman politician to be very serious about in a way that like being, you know, foreign policy is more like gated off to women or it's harder for them to prove their their bona fides there. But she's just been like milk toast at every turn, kind of mealy mouth, like won't really go after Trump. Like her biggest kind of splash moment was when Don Lemon called her past her prime and then right. she like stamped that on a bunch of merch and sold it. So you know, in terms of this exercise we've been doing of like, why are they doing this? Hers seems to me to be shooting for some kind of, um, you know, political relevance, whether that come directly through Trump or from some kind of subsidiary type thing. Or conceivably just building a brand for 2028 or 2032. I mean, she's she's young. I mean, I guess Don Lemon didn't think she was young enough, but in any, in any, in any political term, she's young. She has, you know, she could run in multiple successive cycles. I mean, her campaign is, in my mind, the most surprisingly disappointing in, mm-hmm. in success terms. Because, I mean, look, I never thought, she, I was never thought she was going to be the nominee, but she, you know, she worked in the Trump administration. She is rightly or wrongly or was seen as kind of like a coming political figure, a serious person. She was one of the very first to get into this race. I think she may have actually been the first. And it was certainly seen as, wow, Nikki Haley, you know, uh, coming up to bat, you know, making, taking the plunge when it wasn't, I think, totally clear whether they thought anybody was going to get in. So, the fact that she is like, in most of the things I've seen, like at 1%, mm-hmm. like kind of there with like, you know, the Burgum guy and Asa Hutchinson, basically, is surprising to me. I would have, I, you know, it's 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 a kind of funny thing to say I was expecting at least she would get 5%. I mean, you know, what is that's not a big difference. But in this, in this race where 50 or 60% of the support is spoken for, it actually is a kind of a big thing. And, and she is, I mean, as you said, the fact that people ask her if she's still in the race kind of says it all, yeah. right? Like even, even with like Tim Scott, who despite what a lot of people seem to think that somehow he's, you know, if it's not Trump, it's going to be Tim Scott. Well, really? Like, I'm not so sure about that. But I constantly see uh, news reports of Tim Scott at barbecues and just out shaking hands, right? You know, just just that basic level that seems inconsequential and yet isn't because most of what presidential campaigns come down to, the reason you're traveling so much, the reason you're doing all this stuff is so people can see out of the corner of their eye, oh yeah, he's running. Because I saw some momentary video of of him at a barbecue shaking hands, and you don't see that with Nikki Haley. Like it's really not clear she's running. I, I haven't I, I haven't seen any campaign anything about her. Yeah, I mean, and in some ways, she's got barriers that the others don't. Both by virtue of you know being a woman co- uh, candidate in, in either party, especially in this Republican one that has taken such uh, retrograde 
you know, it always has, but a, an, an aggressively retrograde turn in terms of kind of gender roles, although that was going to be an uphill battle for her. But the thing that I agree with you, which I have thought it was surprising, is like she comes from the old Republican world. Even though she's not that young, that's where she's from. She was an up and comer in terms of, she, you know, a young woman of color who like, did her job competently. She had the whole taking down of the Confederate flag thing, showing that she was willing to kind of like buck the extreme elements of the party. And you would think that that of in and of itself, the kind of like I am from the old world before politics were so nasty, like before we had to deal with Trump's brutalism, just kind of a serious policy minded person has just really gotten her nowhere. And as you say, in comparison, you've got Tim Scott, who like, what everyone knows about Tim Scott and what everyone genuinely thinks is that he's nice. Like everyone in Congress likes him. He's just like a nice guy. He's easy to get along with. Um, and, I, you know, I'm sure that kind of plays to his advantage when he's doing baby kissing and handshaking and, and burger flipping type thing. But, you know, comparatively, Nikki Haley's the, the heavyweight in terms of kind of experience and um, just the kind of politician she yeah. is, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, that, I mean, it's funny. It just seems that being kind of like a, a charming, friendly guy who shows up at barbecues has been as effective as like a serious, ambitious politician who's got a lot of impressive roles under her belt. Absolutely is. Um, and, you know, the thing you were mentioning before about, um, you know, one one way for a woman candidate to sort of position herself in a, in a political setup like this is saying, hey, I'm I'm the pro-family candidate, and there's obviously a at least rhetorically a strong place for that in the Republican Party. You know, I've I've been a mother. I know this. I know that. It's not in that sense. It is not just that all the you know the Republican Party's position on abortion, or whatever. It's an ass-kicking party to say like, hey, I know, I know. I know about uh, raising a family. I know about being a mother. I know about caring for a family. That's not this, you know, it, that, that's just, it's an ass kicking party in the sense that at least now there's an argument, and I think it's a right argument that even in the pre-Trump Republican Party, um, the traditionalist evangelical conservative Republican Party, um, to the extent it was talking about pro-family policies, family values, it was really sexual and gender traditionalism. Totally. It wasn't about, you know, child tax credits and stuff like that. I think that's right, but nowhere near as much as this. And I think that really did wall off from her uh, any sort of, you, you know, again, pro-family, pro-caring for a family, pro-supporting a family. It's an ass-kicking party. It's a trolling party. It's a, it's a, that whole kind of thing. So that was really kind of walled off from her. The other thing that doesn't get talked about a lot is... Uh, uh, Haley is from a Sikh background, South, uh, South Asian. She's from a Sikh background. Um, through, at some point in her political career, she started melding that she's both Sikh, but she's also kind of Christian. And she's answered it in, in kind of fuzzy ways. Um, I think even when she was governor, she said she attended a church with her husband for obvious reasons, uh, uh, South Carolina is a very conservative state, a lot of evangelical Christianity. She's going to want to sort of downplay her non-Christian background. And uh, certainly for 
evangelical Christians, you can't say you're both. And there's no saying it kind of was osmotic. I was both, but now I just became more and more Christian and less. It's a, it's a, it's a dividing line thing. When did you become Christian in that world? When did you accept Jesus as your personal savior? And when did you become Christian? Not, not, you know, you can say with a lot of these candidates is Chris Christie Christian. He comes from a Christian ancestry. Maybe his, I have no idea. I guess Christie's Catholic. In any case, the point is that probably walls her off in a way that is less than totally apparent somewhat to some extent, because just because she's South Asian and she's alien in that sense to, to a lot of conservative voters, but also that she's not Christian. Yep. Or if to the extent that she says she's Christian, it's in a way that's vague enough that almost is a problem in itself. It would be better if they, if you just say, okay, I'm not Christian, not like Mm -hmm. you're sort of half Christian or something like that. It's another issue for her. So, okay. Asa Hutchinson, in some way, kind of has the easiest script of the night, right? He also, you know, talk about coming from the old Republican Party. That's kind of his whole appeal, Um, you know, talking, being anti-Trump, being more broadly anti-Trumpism. You know, that's the whole, that's his whole shtick. That's all he does. So, you know, for him, he will probably get almost no flack because why would you bother? And then he just kind of gets to stand up there and like be one of the two people that, you know, raises their hands with Christie if, if they get the question about uh, Joe Biden's presidency. And, you know, him, his to me seems like the most kind of like straightforward job. Also, because everyone who's left turn is on the outer flanks of the line tonight is going to get like 90 seconds to talk anyway. So, <laughs> yeah, no, it's 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 the it's the old GOP. And, and Hutchinson was not a uh, was not a squish in the old GOP. Both the Hutchinson's brothers, I'm losing track now, uh, you know, very conservative. So, so the the old GOP, the old, the thing that, you know, he's going to come up and say Trump did bad things. It's, you know, that script. The one thing that I think is, is notable is that um, Christie has the same script, but he's going to read from the script in, in the voice of ass kicking. Very aggressive very, you know, hard at it as another bully. Hutchinson's not that. He's sort of, you know, kind of a, the nice guy type. So right. he's just going to kind of say it and not with a lot of volume. Um, Hutchinson is also it. like a little bit more, even more lefty on certain things. Like he kind of started getting his name in the paper because he objected to trans stuff going down in his state like he was kind of a a very lonely voice you know staking out the like i don't really think we should spend our time being cruel to children thing which you know credit to him for Mm -hmm. for being one of the very few saying that but um you know if if he gets any more airtime outside of the anti-trump stuff i wouldn't be that surprised if that's what it centered on and where that came down on he vetoed a bill in in, in arkansas when he was still governor and he's been gov i guess he that was the 2022 when when she was she became governor when Huckabee uh-huh. mm-hmm. succeeded him. Yep. Uh, so yeah, and he and and to be clear for our listeners, you know, not so, he's not like a big trans rights guy, but there's a number of Republicans, I think the the at least the then governor of Utah, where they kind of they're basically what 
progressives would see as anti-trans, but, but kind of saying, hey, these are kids. It's complicated. It's weird to me. But like, I don't want to be demonizing children who are obviously struggling. I think his, right. his opposition was sort of in that, in that vein. And, you know, as you say, to be clear, he has signed into law, you know, other bills like that bar trans kids from kind of playing on the sports team of the gender that they identify with. So like you say, we're, we're not out here being like he's a huge trans ally. He is just willing to be more vocally uncomfortable with the just brutal and vicious kind of targeting of almost exclusively trans children yeah. and was willing to to veto the bill that um, would have barred kind of like trans health care. Um, yeah, and placing state. some limits, just saying kind of like there's some limits on what he's what he's willing to do in that. But again, I think that that is, uh, it will be interesting because he'll get, you know, 60 seconds of airtime. Right. And, and I assume he will just kind of say, we've got to move on. As we're, as we're coming to the end here, I think one, one thing that's worth, um, there's a number of candidates, uh, Christie and Hutchinson, the obvious ones, but maybe Pence, possibly, who could have a debate moment if, if, they, if they found a moment where they could say something like, who's going to realize that if you think we need to move past Trump, you can't have every candidate defending him constantly? that you've got to be for Trump or against him. And all of you people up here think you can have it both ways and you can't. You know, is it, do you want Trump to be the nominee or do you not? And he's sort of the one who could, who could do the, you know, who, mm -hmm. could, who could have that moment. I mean, maybe there's an outside chance that Pence could, but he's not going to do it because it's yeah. just not, it's not in his blood. So to round out our stage, we have uh, Doug Burgum from North Dakota, who now kind of the high, the the big story about his debate presence is going to be the news that just came out that he went to the hospital um, after playing pickup basketball with his staff, and it was in doubt whether he would be able, physically able um, to come. The reporting has since said he's going to do the walkthrough. He's planning to attend. Um, I, I don't know the nature of the injury. Like there is a chance he might be on crutches or something when we get up there tonight. But it's funny because I think up until this is going to be the biggest thing that people know about. Yeah, it's the, yeah no, totally. Like, I, if you, sh I mean, I'm embarrassed to say this. If you showed me three pictures, if you did a lineup for me, I would not, I'm not sure I could identify Burgum. And with, you know, with any other, with any, in any other debate context, having someone either sitting for a debate, because mm -hmm. if you're on crutches standing for an hour and a half or two hours, yeah. that's a lot, right? And so for in any other, in any other context, there'd be a big question, is it going, is it better not to show up than to be sitting? Because sitting is a very, it's sitting. You don't sit at a debate, you stand, right? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a demonstration of ability, readiness, blah, 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 blah. If you're on crutches, if you're sitting, there'd be all sorts of kind of questions. Is it, is it hurt his campaign? In this case, it doesn't matter because no one even knows who Doug Burgum is other than he's like from some state up in the prairie north that's near right. Canada. I mean, which is also the kind of 
stand, I think, is pretty fundamentally ableist, but I doubt that Bergam will be able to kind of use that to yeah, his advantage not, in this exactly. party. That's not gonna that's not gonna fly in the right. Republican Party. Well, and the only other thing that I had kind of like heard of Bergam organically that I hadn't sought out is that he was the one that did the donate me a dollar and I'll yeah. give you a, a big gift card type thing. Yeah, or, basically, yeah. Not big, but I think he was a $20 gift card. So a $20 gift card in exchange for the $1 to get him enough donors to qualify yeah. for the debate stage, which when I first heard that, I was like, how is that legal? <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's, I don't know how it is legal either. And maybe just no one cares since obviously it's not going to go anywhere, but it, and, 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 well, I, I guess one point that is worth noting is that it, it only would make any sense in this context. He He's like a, a very wealthy man. I don't know mm-hmm. quite how wealthy he's, he's a very, he, he can self-finance. He's that level of, of wealth. So he doesn't need the money. It was all about just gaming the system for getting, uh, getting into the debates. So it's only to the extent that it is, in, <laughs> there doesn't need to be in ordinary circumstances, there doesn't need to be a law about you can't give people $20 for every dollar they give you. That's not okay, you know, because why would anybody do that? It doesn't make sense, except in this case where you're trying to get into the debate when no one knows uh, who you are. And uh, those are our players. Those are our contestants. These eight illustrious figures will will fill out the stage tonight with uh, Trump's ghost kind of looming over the proceedings yeah yeah so uh enjoy it if you if you um if you tune in and uh you know we will be uh on hand to give you some give you some wrap up and and coverage after the debate and we'll be live blogging during it so bring us up if you uh if you want to watch alongside so we will, us, we will have you covered. And yeah, we'll, 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 as, as you watch, we will, we'll kind of, we'll be thinking of, of, of the things we discussed in this episode also and kind of thinking like, all right, well, you know, uh, uh, you know, DeSantis, DeSantis had a, had a, a commanding, a commanding, uh, performance and didn't bring pudding or, <laughs> you know, whether, whether Christie or Asa Hutchinson managed to pull it off. So yeah, that is our, that is our preview and, uh, we'll be watching along with you tonight. All right. See you then. Later. The Josh Marshall podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter, Kate Riga and TPM founder, editor in chief, Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song. And thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen. 